Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, China has held a central financial work conference in Beijing to deepen reforms in the financial sector. What are the major takeaways? China established the Xinjiang Pilot Free Trade Zone. How does it fit into the broader economic and trade strategies of the country? Bolivia cuts diplomatic ties with Israel over the war in Gaza. How might this diplomatic backlash impact the broader international response to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And as world leaders gather in the UK for the AI Safety Summit, how can they work to address immediate and long-term challenges posed by AI? China has held a central financial work conference in Beijing to deepen reforms in the financial sector. The meeting urged more efforts to prevent financial risks, deepening financial supply-side structural reforms. CGTN's Gao Yiming has more. Senior Chinese officials agreeing preventing financial risks is crucial to the financial sector. They say the financial innovation should be market-oriented and remain compliant with laws. And the finance sector must provide high-quality services for the economic and social development. The meeting stressed the importance of deepening financial supply-side structural reforms and the need to optimize the fund supply structure. More financial resources should be leveraged to facilitate tech innovation, advanced manufacturing, and green development, as well as supporting micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises. More efforts are to be made to develop the financial sector from five fronts, including projects concerning old age and digital finance. As China continues to advance its reform and opening up, leaders also emphasized improving the opening up in the financial sector while ensuring the security of national finance and economy. They also called for facilitating cross-border investment and financing to attract more foreign-funded institutions and long-term capital. And more should be done to strengthen financial regulations as well as prevent and defuse financial risks. Real estate was also on the agenda, particularly improving the supervision on real estate enterprises. China will promote the virtuous development cycle between the financial sector and the property sector, and improve the macroprudential management of real estate financing. This includes satisfying all the reasonable financing demands of real estate enterprises, regardless of types of ownership. That's Gao Yiming reporting. And for more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yao Shujie, Chengkeng Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, first of all, what's your main takeaway from this uh, Central Financial Work Conference? What key message does it send? Uh, financial services is a complement or, or it is an inclusive part of the national economy, which is uh, very important in supporting uh, and promoting the real economy sector, uh, services, uh, manufacturing and agriculture, and now the digital economy. So the meeting by the Central Committee on Financial uh, System uh, is very important. It highlights the future direction and focus on the key points of how China can move forward uh, to make the financial system more uh, you know, precisive and more efficient in supporting the real economy. 
it did actually identify a few areas for uh, serious attention. For example, like technological innovation, uh, green development, and also the, the, the for the first time, you know, the elderly care uh, finance is now put into the agenda, which is quite a quite a significant uh, step forward. But uh, most importantly, I think the financial meeting is to discuss how to prevent this kind of financial system uh, risk, especially the systematic financial system risk, including the housing sector, including the local government debt, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a very comprehensive, uh, very timing, uh, you know, meeting for guiding the financial development in China at this particular moment. Particularly, it also emphasized the foreign exchange stability mm-hmm. because China's real economy is expanding uh, steadily, but because of the renminbi is depreciating against the U.S. dollar. So how China can, you know, stabilize the financial and uh, you know, foreign exchange system is also uh, for China to maintain the international competitive advantage mm. uh, immediately and also in the future. So the meeting emphasized the need for finance to offer high-quality services to support China's economy, and the government focus should be on creating a favorable monetary and financial environment while strengthening the high-quality financial services. So how do you explain that? Well, first of all, I mean, the real economy uh, is now cannot be decoupled uh, from the financial system, the financial service uh, sector. Finance become uh, uh, as, almost as important as the real economy. And finance uh, can do a great deal uh, to strengthen uh, the real economy in two different aspects. First of all, the direction of real economy development, where the macroeconomic system can indicate, for example, like technological innovation and also uh, digital economy and so on and so forth. And number two, I think the financial system has to be uh, used more efficiently so there will be less uh, you know, waste and also the cost of financial system have to be you know, steady and gradually reduced, not to become a burden for the real uh, economy sector. So these are the two points. And on top of this, as I mentioned, uh, preventing financial risk is the, the, the ultimate you know, goal of the financial system management. And it also stressed the optimization of funding structures from the supply side. And this involves allocating more financial resources to drive the technological innovation, advance manufacturing, and promote green development and also support small and medium-sized enterprises. So what do you think needs to be done on this front? Well, this, um, you know, more focused and the directed uh, financial services reflect the need of the Chinese industrial structure transformation. The industrial transformation at the moment and in the future is that, number one, it's going to uh, gear toward the more technological innovative sector. And number two is to support employment, particularly the small and medium-sized enterprises, which have been uh, disadvantaged in terms of financial services and credit availability. So um, the, the, the emphasis on this uh, you know, supply-side uh, financial system reform 
is actually going to uh, coincide uh, with the real economy system reform. So the two reform, the structural transformation in the real sector and also the financial system reform have to be uh, consistent. And this is why we have the, you know, the emphasis on the sector that you just mentioned. Mm. And five key areas of financial services were identified. They are technological finance, the green finance, inclusive finance, outlay care finance, and also the digital finance. So why are these areas from your perspective? These areas are the most important areas for China's economic development in order to create uh, in a comparative advantage and comparative dynamic change of China's uh, adva- competitive advantage in the international economy. Uh, first of all, technological innovation is now uh, so important for China to move from the medium-high economy to a high economy in the immediate future. And also, it is important for China to become the advanced economy in the medium and longer term. And uh, you know, green technology uh, is so important because China has entered a stage that um, economic development and green development have to be coincided. Otherwise, the environment would be deteriorated, especially the climate change, the carbon emission, and so on and so forth. The only approach uh, for China to uh, maintain a certain level of economic development is to make sure that it is sustainable. And green technology has to be applied so it is actually closely related to the first issue of technological innovation. But technological innovation have to be directed uh, to the, the more green uh, development in the past. For example, uh, renewable energy, uh, in the efficiency of the traditional transformation, traditional manufacturing sector, and also how uh, the digital economy can be deployed. Uh, to increase energy efficiency. Mm. Yeah, the other three, I mean, the old care, uh, elderly care finance, the inclusive finance, and also the, uh, you know, the, the other financial area is basically to make sure that the Chinese economy can be balanced, particularly the uh, for the disadvantaged group, inclusive finance, which is targeted toward not only the the you know the medium size but also the micro, uh, you know, uh, enterprise sector. And earlier you mentioned the risks like the local government debt risk and the property market risks. So, what do you think needs to be done to address these risks? I mean, the for the property market uh, financial risks, I think the thing that is also highlighted in the meeting is to change the, the, the traditional uh, development model of the housing sector. Uh, traditionally, the housing sector over the last three decades, we have focused primarily on the, on the finance, on the commercial housing sector, which lead to some sort of uh, structural distortions. And there's a lack of attention paying uh, to the low and medium-sized uh, in the income uh, population. So uh, the, 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 the change is to focus more on the commercial, uh, less on the commercial housing, but more on the uh, economy housing and also the renting sector to make sure that the housing sector has a 
most transistent to reduce the risk. The second is the, the local government debt is to make sure that the debt have to balance between the central government and the regional government and to make sure that the debts have been used for the productive sector so that in the future, uh, you know, the local economy can generate sufficient financial revenue to pay back the debt. Mm-hmm. And the conference also discussed the gradual expansion of institutional openness in the financial sector. And this includes improving cross-border investment and uh, attracting the foreign financial institutions and long-term capital for business development. So how significant is that for China's economy? Well, the Chinese economy has benefited from openness and also you know, the attraction of foreign direct investment. Uh, over the last four and a half decades. So China has uh, benefited from this and will continue to benefit from this. So keep the door open is very important. But how the door can be opened more efficiently and effectively is like uh, not only the real economy sector, which has been widely open to the external investment, but the financial system has been relatively restricted uh, to foreign investors due to various reasons, particularly the governing regulation. So the institutional opening is to make sure that foreign uh, financial service sector can come to China to serve the Chinese real economy more freely than in the past. Uh, so, But they have to be directed toward a certain sector of the economy and have to be gradual. There is a balance between foreign uh, financial investment in China and also the international risk that may be brought about by the opening. So this time, China can, uh, you know, possible by maintaining a, a global and national stability of the financial system, and then the door can be more open to the external finance. And why we need to open to the external financial investors? Number one, we have to use the best practices of financial uh, services that have been prevailed in the international market. And number two, by introducing the foreign investor in the financial sector can actually increase the competitiveness of the domestic financial system, which is uh, very good for the uh, long-term efficiency of the Chinese financial sector. That's Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University, speaking with Zhao Yang. This is World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China has established the Xinjiang Pilot Free Trade Zone, the 22nd zone of its kind, and the first in the country's northwest border area. China will make efforts to build the free trade zone into the model for promoting high-quality development in its central and western regions and a pivotal hub for Xinjiang to integrate into the dual circulation of domestic and international markets. The free trade zone will serve the construction of the core area of the Belt and Road Initiative and help build a golden channel between Asia and Europe. For more, we are now joined on the line by Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University. Dr. Liu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so what are the key objectives of China in establishing the Xinjiang pilot free trade zone, and how does that fit into the broader economic and trade strategies of the country? I should say that this decision is very clever and has a very important strategic, strategic importance in Xinjiang development. 
as well as for the whole country. As we know that uh, there are three major uh, purposes to establish the uh, pilot free trade zone in Xinjiang. First, I think they give a uh, best way and the chances to, for Xinjiang to open up to uh, Western areas, not only for in, in within China, but also from the outside of uh, China, because go to West is something very important for Xinjiang economic development. And the secondly, it's also very important that to put the Xinjiang, the economic uh, development in the domestic and uh, external uh, circulation, that, that is the dual circulation, in order to have a closely connection with the Xinjiang uh, local economic uh, resources. And the third is also, that, as you mentioned, that it may important that to serve the purpose and the implementation of Belt and Road Initiative, especially in the Middle Asian countries. Yeah, uh, so what distinguishes this free-trade zone from other, others in China, and how does it contribute to the regional diversity in China's approach to free trade? Yeah, that's, uh, as you mentioned, this is a, a, a district or area the, the, the diversity is China's uh, further economic development. We have already 21 free trade zone, uh, but in Xinjiang, of its kind is uh, very uh, seldom. I think it's very rare because of the specialized uh, feature in Xinjiang. The Xinjiang, from its location, is at the border of the West. And uh, secondly, it has very important uh, traditional uh, industrial and agriculture and the culture uh, heritage uh, for the development. That is very special that the different from other, because the difference is made diversity, make the respect for Xinjiang. And the third is very important that Xinjiang has also learned a lot from the inland provinces for to operate the free trade zone. And nowadays they can get a better experience and a booster for its own. So in this way that we can see that a lot of chances and channels and opportunities, not only for Xinjiang entrepreneur, but also for entrepreneurs outside of Xinjiang in China, as well as in the border uh, countries. So this is a very important opportunity to have a close international cooperation with each other. Yeah, and can you elaborate on the significant role that Xinjiang plays in the Belt and Road and in in fostering the China-Central Asia community and also its function as a critical golden channel connecting Asia and Europe? Yeah, that's true. As we know that there's a uh, between uh, Asia and uh, Europe, we try to build up a golden uh, corridor or golden channel for trading. Uh, but uh, you know that uh, some uh, uh, problems located in the uh, Middle Asian countries as well as other uh, factors that uh, occurred in this area. So Xinjiang's role is very special and very important. As some people say, it's quite crucial whether this uh, the, the Middle Asian countries uh, can be well developed. Sometimes it depends on the development of Xinjiang itself. So in this way, Xinjiang has a very good connection and the infrastructure uh, buildings and the, the outside. As we know, all this uh, train uh, transportation come from the inland and through the whole Xinjiang. 
to, to the European countries, as we know, more than 200 cities in Europe. So in this way that we can see the strategic importance of Xinjiang can play. And as other uh, point I should have to say, Xinjiang is something that uh, very new in high tech, in mm. AI or in smart technology. So Xinjiang's product will be very, very important, attractive for the foreigners, especially for those uh, neighboring countries. Because as we know, in the past 10 years, already Western countries try to stigmatize or smear Xinjiang's image. Nowadays, Xinjiang is open to outside. This is a very important step to make the boosting of Xinjiang economy and also make a good connection between China and the Western countries. Yeah, and also the plan mentions that the Xinjiang Free Trade Zone will have greater autonomy in reform. How do we understand this? Uh, this uh, we should say that uh, Xinjiang at the moment as when is uh, quite new in in the developed trade in China, not only for domestic market but also for international market as we know. But because of some political barriers imposed by Western countries, and it can be so. Uh, uh, not well implemented in that, that time before. But nowadays, I think uh, Xinjiang is trying to build up a new image, uh, have close connection with the Western side, and especially for the Middle Asian countries, in order to build up confidence and uh, trust from the other outside. So this is very uh, crucial and important, not only for Xinjiang itself, because uh, for the whole uh, China, it's also very important. Xinjiang has... Uh, suffered a, a lot from the Western uh, embargo or, or sanction before time. Now Xinjiang is trying to open up widely and more inclusively, and that will make the whole world, especially for the Western part of uh, uh, our country, will be getting more boosted. Okay, and and the plan mentions uh, the cultivation and, ex- and expansion of industries unique to Xinjiang. Uh, so, are there specific sectors or industries that you believe have uh, the greatest growth potential? As we know, as a uh, Chinese, we know that the Xinjiang has its specialist uh, uh, products, not only for agriculture or fruit and the different culture heritage, but also uh, from its smart technology, especially for AI technology. As we know. Uh, Xinjiang has uh, two uh, major uh, productivity. For instance, for the from the uh, from the local uh, army, the, the labor forces, they have uh, uh, already established very high quality, high technology institutions and factories. They made a really good technologies and uh, smart uh, equipment. So in this way, that they can export to the outside with the lower cost, with the high quality of of its kind. So this is a very important thing that for Xinjiang to restart its, uh, uh, how to say, further development in the economic uh, area. So this is a very important step for Xinjiang's future for the next 10 years and 20 years. This is not only the first free trade zone in Xinjiang, but also I think they will have something more to establish, to be established and to boost its uh, development. Yeah, that's uh, thank you, Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. More to come, Bolivia cuts diplomatic ties with Israel over the war in Gaza. How might this diplomatic backlash impact the broader international response to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? 
U.S. strikes four African countries off preferential trade list. How will it impact the economy of these countries? And as world leaders gather in the U.K. for the AI Safety Summit, how can they work to address immediate and long-term challenges posed by AI? You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Bolivia has become the first Latin American country to cut diplomatic ties with Israel over the war in Gaza. Colombia and Chile recalled their ambassador to Israel for consultations as they condemned the deaths of civilians in Gaza and called for a ceasefire. Other Latin American countries, including Mexico and Brazil, have also called for a ceasefire. About 2.3 million people live in Gaza, and the UN officials say Israel's bombardment has left more than 1.4 million of them homeless. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Jin, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. So, Dr. Wang, can you provide some context on the historical relationship between Bolivia and Israel, and、uh, the factors that led to this latest decision? I, I think the, the Bolivia and other <coughs> and other、uh, South American countries they traditionally they had very close ties、uh, because on the one hand uh, uh, they they are political、uh, many of them this,、uh, this Latin American as well as the South American countries they are political、uh, circumstances are largely influenced by United States and on the other hand we have to know that Israel、uh, to some extent. Uh, has a very close、uh, close tie with the United States and also in、uh, in a lot of、uh, several Latin American major countries, the, the the Jews as well the Israelis they have their interest、uh, groups inside the country, so their connections are very strong. But the problem is that、uh, during the past uh, 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 the, during the past weeks, a lot of things started to change because given the fact that Israel launches the、uh, uh, continuously the, the strikes against the Gaza Strip. And also, this、uh, strikes and attacks led to the humanitarian crisis,、uh, waves of humanitarian crisis uh, uh, that shocked the whole world. It's become a very,、uh, very, very important obstacle for Israel and some、uh, some states, especially in Bolivia and other、uh, and other states, because they actually expressed a very public anger towards Israel as well towards United States, and、uh, that is why uh, finally. Uh, Accumulated into this kind of the diplomatic cut between the ties of diplomatic cut between Israel and、uh, I think this will not、uh, will be the beginning. I, I think this just will be, be the beginning, not the final step. But also, I think it will be, be, become the beginning. I think in the future, maybe more and more states they will follow the trend to、uh, to either、uh, suspend the ties with Israel or. To give much more pressure to Israeli government to to stop their military actions against the Gaza Strip. Yes, and actually, Colombia and Chile have also recalled their ambassador in Tel Aviv for consultations in response to the conflict in Gaza.、Uh, just how significant is it when、uh, Latin American countries take such actions in solidarity with the Palestinian cause? Uh, traditionally, they all have、uh, the, the Palestinians. They also have the groups. Many Palestinians. They also have the very、uh, strong groups and presence、uh, in some Latin American countries. For example, in Chile, 
uh, in Colombia. They have the local Arab uh, or Palestinian um, businessmen groups and the networks there. So they traditionally have the very social, uh, strong, very social, uh, very strong social connections. And uh, uh, after this uh, this outbreak of the wars, their social image were shocked. In uh, Israeli social image was shocked inside uh, some of the Latin American countries. Especially, we know that uh, in some of these countries, the left wing parties and the left wing uh, social groups are very strong and very influential. So they could uh, change or transform the very uh, traditional uh, good image of Israel and to the very realistic image of the of the war between Israelis and Palestinians in Gaza Strip. This is a little bit uh, controversial, but it is what is happening right now. So uh, I think that is why uh, it will give the pressure to the to Israel, uh, because actually Latin American states traditionally they keep the balance between the two sides, Israel and the Arab, and Israel and Palestinians always keep the try to keep the balance. And to some extent, uh, on many occasions, they hope to maintain the close ties with Israel as a very priority in their Middle Eastern foreign policy. But right now, what is happening is trying to is a kind of a collapse of their traditional uh, political and the diplomatic structure. So I think in the future, which will be to further crisis between Israel and other uh, the diplomatic relations with other Latin American countries as well to other parts of the world. Okay, but on the other hand, uh, we see the United States has just uh, confirmed a new ambassador to Israel, uh, the former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, who has promised to stand side by side with Israel. How does the U.S. stance affect the situation on the ground? United States, of course, was, was on the one hand, as you said, uh, stands very closely and firmly with with Israel, and on the other hand, provided a lot of uh, weapons and the goods and assistance directly to uh, to uh, to to Israel. Uh, the the problem is that on the one hand, Israel, is, especially in the political arena, not in the social uh, social platform, but uh, but in the political arena, the, the the political leadership inside the United States. Their priority in foreign policy, especially in the Middle Eastern policy, they hope to maintain the very close ties with Israel to secure the Israelis' uh, safety and uh, to ensure Israel's military victory in the front line. And also, on the other hand, after this out round of the out of war outbreak out, outbreak uh, early this month, I mean the October the seventh, the United States. Immediately sent the uh, the fleet to Israel and also to send a lot of the, uh, the the goods and the military support to Israel to provide Israeli the capabilities to continue their military actions against the Gaza Strip. So although the United States try to mediate, try to show their image that they are trying to mediate the peace, they try to uh, persuade Israel. But then on the other hand, what they really did is to uh, give the more capabilities of Israel to launch strikes against the Gaza Strip. So I think this uh, this means more disasters and more tragedies for civilians in the Gaza Strip, and also will it will add more dis, uh, distrust and hatred of Palestinians uh, towards Israelis in the future. This will become the tragedy for both sides. Okay, and and Israel has rejected calls for a ceasefire, and we see the diplomatic maneuvering at the United Nations surrounding this um, Israel-Hamas conflict appears very complex and nuanced. Uh, so, what can be done to to translate those UN discussions and resolutions into concrete actions that may have a real impact on the ground? 
I think it's very difficult to uh, to implement the international consensus and international hopes uh, very completely to bring the peace between the two sides, Israeli and Palestinian, in very short term. Because on the one hand, Israeli now is uh, still launching their uh, strikes against the Gaza Strip, and Israeli public opinion, social opinion, are still defining the Hamas as a very immediate target that should be eliminated uh, totally. So that is why. Uh, it is very difficult to cease fire right now. That is why it's really rejected the ceasefire calls uh, from different parties. It's uh, not not only United Nations, but also from uh, from Egypt. Israel doesn't care about it. On the other hand, uh, we're talking about how to establish a kind of uh, humanitarian corridor, or how to provide more humanitarian assistance to the local people in Gaza Street. Uh, that means that we have to uh, ensure that some parts of some locations should not be attacked by Israel, but this has also become very difficult because Israel uh, believes that the Gaza Strip is still under the control of the Hamas and any uh, transformation of the goods, especially the large number of the uh, humanitarian goods into Gaza Strip will be transferred from Israeli perspective to the hands of the Hamas militias. So that is unacceptable for Israeli decision makers. So in the future, I think international society should continue on the one hand to give pressure to Israel to, to reach the ceasefire as soon as possible, and on the other hand, to try to continue to help the local people there in Gaza Strip for the Palestinians there to, through more uh, humanitarian crisis, uh, more, more humanitarian goods and more humanitarian assistance. Uh, so I think this is, might be the only way to help the local people there to help to facilitate the possible uh, peace, talk, uh, peace opportunities between Israel and Palestinians. Okay, thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. This is World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The United States will remove preferential trading access under the African Growth and Opportunity Act from four African countries, citing human rights violations and failure to make democratic progress. Uganda, the Central African Republic, Gabon, and Niger will lose status in January. The U.S. introduced the act in 2000. It gives eligible sub-Saharan African countries duty-free access to the U.S. for more than 1,800 products. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Ho Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Dr. Ho, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is behind the U.S. decision to strike the four African countries off the preferential trade list? Well, the major reason uh, the United States uh, has uh, proposed that they say in those countries are violating uh, so-called human rights. Uh, we all know uh, those four countries like uh, Gabon had a military coup and also Niger also had a military coup. So and then uh, this uh, Central uh, Africa Republic, all uh, together with Uganda, they are saying they all have some, uh, uh, you know, policies against the human rights. This is the thing. Uh, even in Uganda, uh, the reason thing because Uganda passed a law uh, against uh, those uh, homosexual, these uh, people like uh, gays and the lesbians, uh, even put those uh, uh, homosexual people uh, even to the death penalty. So this is against the human rights, uh, according to the uh, United States, uh, their opinion. So that's why they take those four countries off uh, this preferential trade list. 
Okay, so how might the removal of these countries from the act impact their economies? Well, I don't think、uh, this can uh, influence uh, those four countries' economy that much,、uh, because according to this agua,、uh, saying as many as eight thousand products、uh, can enjoy those、uh, duty-free、uh, policy、uh, to get the products into U.S. market, but actually,、uh, in the past、uh, decades,、uh, those、uh, you know those policy preferential actually cannot be、uh, you know used、uh, to a great extent. Uh, the reason is、uh, those products,、uh, you know, even simply because those African countries even cannot get those products ready.、Uh, only those like oil-related、uh, those products sometimes、uh, can can be allowed get into the U.S. market, and many others they also go with、uh, like a value-added uh, some uh, uh, quality, and then some uh, like it's a green development quality, so so on so forth.、Uh, we all know Africans industrial.、Uh, Industrialization、uh, remain at a very low level,、uh, so it's not that easy、uh, for them to get ready. All those like eight thousand、uh, more products now can be all qualified to meet those standards and、uh, can enter into the U.S. market. Not mention those like、uh, duty free.、Uh, the, every product they have their own、uh, priority、uh, for quality issue,、uh, like、uh, virus free, so all those things. Okay, but what do you make of the approach of linking human rights and democratic progress to the AGOA eligibility, and perhaps more broadly, this、uh, value-based policy toward trade and 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 economy? Yeah, this has been a common used policy, not only by the United States and also by the European country as a whole.、Uh, that is called,、uh, you know, the conditionality of、uh, this、uh, aid policy. So every preferential preferential policy. Uh, in terms of trade, or in terms of investment, or even in terms of foreign assistance, all、uh, linked with some conditionality. So those conditionality、uh, often relates to uh, many uh, those uh, political issues,、uh, like、uh, NGO. Whether you allow the NGO、uh, can be freely established, or whether you allow the free speech,、uh, even like now this time、uh, goes to Uganda, even this、uh, homosexual. Uh, this policy. So this is the common approach has been used、uh, quite quite a long time by the U.S. and European countries as a whole,、uh, because they think uh, those uh, economic means, uh, those preferential policies,、uh, should be and must be linked with those、uh, social progress and the political equality and the human rights, democracy, all those things.、Uh, this this has been economic means has been used as a leverage、uh, to push forward. Uh, their human rights and democracy. Okay, but will will that really do any help to the human rights situation in in those countries? Because you know Susan Mwawizi, who is、uh, the senior advisor to the Ugandan president on trade, said that Uganda was not aware of the reasons for it being removed from AGOA, and she said probably the U.S. has a different interpretation of human rights. How how do you look at this? Oh、uh, yes, I think uh, the Miss、um, Susan. You know, has、uh, made the right point here. Ah,、uh, this is double standard about、uh, how to understand human rights. You know, for all those developing country and especially those least developing country, the biggest and the utmost human rights is to make people have food on the table, yeah, have shelter to live. Ah,、uh, if the people the homeless and the jobless and no food to eat, so and then you talk about like、uh, 
Uh, you should allow them to be the lesbian or to be the gay. Uh, that goes to another way around. Uh, plus, like in Africa, uh, their culture. So they have their own culture. They have their own social environment. So for, for their understanding, uh, those uh, gays or lesbians are totally against uh, their understanding and their traditional culture. So it's not good uh, for them to maintain a very harmonious. Uh, there's a family. Uh, there's a bond. And also, like even women and men, they think marriage is between a woman and a man. So this is a tradition. Uh, this is a culture. So uh, you cannot put your own uh, understanding about the human rights and then to sit with a different culture and a different economic development level. I think this is a totally uh, different interpretation of human rights, mm-hmm. double standards. Yeah, and, and we know that South Africa is about to host the 20th Goa Forum. How might these um, expulsions affect the discussions and agenda at the upcoming forum, especially in relation to broader U.S.-Africa trade relations? Uh, certainly, I think uh, these uh, expulsions itself will become a topic uh, in this upcoming uh, Agros Forum. Of course, uh, that will generate a new round of debate about uh, what is the precondition for this agua uh, continue? Because now African countries will talk, uh, will negotiate with the uh, White House about how to continue uh, to extend uh, this, uh, you know, this uh, agua uh, to the next uh, phase. Uh, because this agua has started from the year 2000, and then over the past uh, different Americans administrations uh, from Clinton's time. All the way, uh, Junior Bush and then Obama, and now uh, to the uh, now this is the Biden administration. So how this agua will continue uh, to move forward? Uh, how is this kind of uh, you know the uh, uh, linkage uh, with this, uh, a lot of political uh, this precondition? Well, it continue goes like that way. So this certainly will come up with a uh, you know very heated debate between African countries and the United States as well. I think uh, that will certainly also go through uh, a broader discussion about uh, how to handle U.S.-Africa trade and relations in the future. Uh, because you cannot say, oh, I give you some uh, preferential policy, and then you have to do this, you have to do that. So this will against the so-called Africans' ownership uh, and also those equality. Now the White House also mentioned now they want to put Africa at the center of the, you know, all those bilateral relations. So this African-led, uh, driven also by Africans, their own wishes of this kind of relationship. This kind of good work has been repeatedly said by, like, even State Secretary Blinken and also uh, the many uh, White House, those uh, high-level officials, they visited Africa in the first half of this year. Yeah, they mentioned again and again, even uh, at the end of last year, this uh, U.S.-Africa summit, uh, took place uh, in the Washington, D.C. Also, this is the same thing, talking about Africa's ownership, talking about now Africa. Now is uh, all the way, uh, now as a bright future, now U.S. also, now is uh, on the future of Africa. So mm-hmm. how you make this world into action? So that will be a heated debate, uh, I think, in the coming this 20th Aqua Forum. Thank you, Dr. Ho Wenping, Africa expert and senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This is World Today. We'll be back. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. 
Britain is bringing together companies, political leaders, and experts for a two-day discussion on the potential risks posed by artificial intelligence. The summit aims to build an international consensus on the safe development of AI. China is also invited to the summit. Wu Zhaohui, Vice Minister of Science and Technology, along with representatives from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, tech companies, and academic institutions, will attend this event. For more, we are now joined by Dr. Mike Bastian, senior lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK.、Uh, so, Mike, what are the key objectives of the summit? What issues are being discussed? That's a very good question. I think one of the key issues is, is simply to get this on the agenda. This is something that has developed very, very quickly. And generative AI is something that is of concern to a number of groups、uh, in education,、uh, in terms of、uh, safety and security. So I think the key objective of this summit, more than anything, is simply to clarify the issues and to start the discussion seriously. We haven't had this sort of、uh, summit that's totally focused to. To, to AI and the developments in AI, really much before. So, so I think that the, the key issues will be to clarify those and prioritize those. And I think it, it will come down to safety, security,、uh, and, and making sure that、um, there is protection and that the, the discussion continues because the technology will most definitely continue and will definitely become more advanced. And countries have to work together effectively. So it's about creating that culture of collaboration、um, and cooperation、uh, that's ongoing. Yes, and it's reported that the summit focuses on frontier AI and its potential risks. But some argue that、uh, perhaps immediate AI-related concerns like energy consumption, job displacement, and data bias、uh, deserve more attention. So, how do you think we can effectively strike a balance in addressing both、uh, the immediate and long-term challenges posed by AI? Yeah, yeah it's a very good question. I think both, really. I mean, in the short term, there's always that concern with technology and the development of technology and job displacement.、Uh, we tend to find in the long term. Uh, with retraining,、uh, that that tends to even itself out, and that, that it tends to be a good thing. So I think in the longer term, the advances in technology generally tend to be a good thing. So I don't think that there, there should be too many、uh, major concerns there. I, I think that the real concern is making sure that this is transparent and that developments in technology are very clear across borders and across countries. And that countries are working together. So yes, energy consumption will be up there. Job displacement will be up there in the short term. So there's got to be something on that. There's got to be a very clear, definitive statement at the end of this summit, so people don't think, well, actually, what did they agree? What did they talk about? But also longer term, it, it's about continuing that discussion and continuing that transparency. I think there, the fear of the unknown is is the biggest factor when it comes to rapid advances in technology, and in this case, AI. Yeah, and as AI evolves、uh, rapidly, should there be a global consensus on ethical AI principles to ensure、uh, its responsible development, or、um, should each nation set its own standards? And and what are the challenges in achieving international alignment on AI ethics? That's a huge issue and a huge challenge, and one of the the, the challenges that this summit hopefully will start to discuss. Ethical standards really need to be. 
transparent and really need to be comparable across countries. Now, countries that are at different stages of development, economic development and integration, and we have to take that into consideration. But certainly ethical standards across borders uh, and throughout the world uh, that are similar really needs to be a target and there needs to be agreement on that. So we need to have protection for vulnerable groups and also uh, where AI can lead to rapid change when it comes to job displacement, energy consumption, in education as well, for example. Key concerns there need to be addressed around the world. So we do need some consensus, but at the same time, a little bit of um, flexibility and room for maneuver for countries where they are at different stages of development and perhaps uh, need, need to be treated a little bit differently. Okay, and and we know that the commercial sector, including tech giants, plays a very significant role in AI, AI development. So how can governments and businesses collaborate effectively to prioritize AI safety without stifling innovation? Well, certainly this is an area where governments, I have to say, have failed. And certainly the UK government has failed. These tech giants have become very, very powerful very, very quickly, and we all know who they are. And they certainly need to be brought under some firm control. So governments need to work across borders, across uh, countries, across regions, and impose very, very strict monitoring and control processes and policies that apply to these tech giants wherever they are. So there shouldn't be any loopholes. They can't relocate and escape certain policies, certain procedures in other countries or regions. I think most people have been calling for that for a long time. So, again, perhaps that's one major issue that the summit can address. The tech giants have got away with a lot uh, for a long time. They're commercial organizations, they're profit-making organizations. They're not geared up to look at ethical issues, ethical standards. That's where government across, across borders and regions really need to work together and, and hope they're in. And we really need to be, see strict action um, very, very quickly and enforced enforcement of that action. I think that's something that everybody is looking mm-hmm. for. And how do you view China's participation in this event and its role in global AI governance? Well, I think it's crucial. I mean, the Chinese um, economy is the, the second largest economy. It, it's still growing at a very healthy rate. It's integrating with the world economy. It's a very powerful economy. And therefore, China's involvement in this sort of dialogue is absolutely essential. So it's great that they're there. They have a presence. And, and that discussion takes place. And it's very good and very important going forward that China is at the top table, most definitely. It is a key economic uh, powerhouse now uh, that needs to to work with other countries and is looking to do so. So I think it's very, very important that this isn't a sort of Western European, North American dominated discussion. It's got to reach out across the changing nature of the world economy and the changes in the balance of power in the world economy. And China is emerging, has emerged and needs to have its seat at the top table. And I'm sure will play a very, very constructive role going forward. Thank you, Dr. Mike Bastian, Senior Lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.